Well, take your Bibles if you have it this morning. We're going to first, before we get to the book of Joshua, what we are first going to do is I want you to take your Bible and turn to Numbers, the book of Numbers. Now, we are continuing our, our study this morning as we're thinking about uh, this text and the, the text of the conquest. As we're walking through the book of Joshua and we're, we're, we're thinking together about the ramifications of what it would, what, what is at stake in the life, uh, lives of believers as we live our lives, as we live our lives before our Lord and Savior. And as a people uh, or who are committed to the truth, I think it is an important question when we, when we think to ourselves, what, what is the value of biblical meditation? Okay, and that's what we're going to which we're going to talk about and park on a little bit this morning, specifically in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, in which we'll come to in just a moment. But, but this morning, I want, to, I want to help us understand this idea of how we stay on mission by staying focused and how biblical, a biblical understanding of, of meditation really can help us when it comes to that. Now, often the, the lives of the Israelite people in the wandering in the wilderness, we see anything but often a reflective kind of people. We see more of a complaining type of people. And we can resonate with a little bit of both, can't we? There are times in which we reflect well, we do things well, we're, we're honoring and fearing the Lord, and then on the other occasions, we find ourselves tempted to grumble, tempted to complain. And I think one of the things that we, we can harness when we think about biblical meditation is how this helps us stay, stay, stay focused so that we can stay on mission. Um, and, and that is certainly the, the desire. Now, we, in Numbers chapter 14, uh, let me just bring us up to speed on where uh, we're going to start in verse number 39. And this is the account of the story after the 12 spies went in. The, the 12 came back. They reported, we've talked a little bit about this, they reported to the people, uh, the land is flowing with milk and honey. There were a couple of facts that they could agree on, all 12. One, the land is incredibly filled with fruit and produce and all of these things. There's one fact. Here's the other fact that they could, that, that they could agree on. There are a great and strong people in this land that would have to be dispossessed of their properties in order for us to gain the things that God said he promised to us. Those things they could agree on. But as those facts came out, there were 10 of them, we remind ourselves, that came back and said, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. What's going to happen to our children? What is going to happen to our very lives? And there were two, because I believe there was a sense in which Joshua and Caleb were able to, to harness the, the perspective of thinking the thoughts that God wanted them to think so that at the moment that they needed to enact those thoughts, apply them and do them, that they were willing and ready. That's the kind of people we want to be. Well, in Numbers chapter 14, we record the people's frustration, calling in a desire to, to stone uh, Joshua, Caleb, Moses, say, like, we're going to go back we're going to go back. We're going to go back to Egypt. Well, notice in, in verse 14, you, you see this response of them recorded. When Moses told these things, this is verse 39 of Numbers 14, when Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, here we are. Now, just pause for a minute. 
Moses just told him, we're not going in because you disobeyed. And we're headed back to the wilderness. And he said, here we are. Uh, they, they went up to the heights of the hill country. This is the people who says, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has plum- promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword." because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Now, you see what is at, what is at stake See, in the life of the people, all of a sudden, Moses got a word from the Lord after their refusal to go in and take the land and then trying to garner the support of the people to say, no, this isn't what God is going to do. The people are too great. And then when it finally came down to it, Moses said, you know what? You're rebellious, you're stubborn, and here's the word from the Lord. You're not going to go. Your carcasses are going to go into the wilderness. Not the most encouraging message. (laughs) that he would, he would have spoken to the people. Your carcasses are going to lay in the ground of the wilderness until the children in whom you feared would not inherit the land because they would die will then inherit the land. And they said to themselves, you know what, we sinned, gather yourselves. Now notice, notice this component. All of a sudden they went from not taking God seriously, trying to garner support for their for their agenda, Moses stopping it by a word of the Lord and saying, we're not going to do that now. Now, because of your disobedience, you're going to go wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one for every single day that you spent spying out the land, and then all of a sudden to a very drastic shift. Okay, we know we're wrong. This wasn't right. Gather yourself. We're going in anyway. And Moses says, don't go. Did, but did you catch why? He will not be with you. Notice the stark contrast in Joshua, uh, in, in the book of Joshua. He says, I will be with you every place your foot treads, every place you will go. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And then to the Numbers 14 as a reminiscing to say, I'm not going to be with you, and the ark of the Lord and the leader, Moses, would not go. And could you imagine? You are watching your friends gather themselves to war, going against the words of God and coming back with, 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 with a slaughtering when they, when they refuse to obey God. What is at stake? When we refuse to meditate and think the thoughts that God wants us to think, well, what is at stake is the possibility of our lives drastically shifting from one drastic situation to another. And yes, we can get to a point where we convince ourselves, no, God wants us to give us the land just like these people. We're going to go do it anyway. And we go without the presence of the Lord, without prayer, without thoughtfulness, 
we could be those kinds of people. So biblical meditation could not be more important to the life of the believer than, than, than it is before us here, as, as it explains in Joshua. And he gives this command in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Flip back to there uh, from Numbers, because I want you to get just because this is where we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, uh, in a very familiar verse. I'm going to back up and read verse 7 and 8 together just to, just to grab the context again. He says, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I want us to grapple with this idea this morning, that biblical meditation helps us stay focused so that we don't forget what the mission is all about. See, the point of the people of God and the point for the leader of God at this point in time was if, if the leader forgot what God had to say or forgot its value and its significance and importance in the life of the people, they would all follow in the wrong direction. If the leader's going the wrong way, he can surely find a following somewhere that a fairly good group of people will say, well, that sounds good to me. And so if we are not meditating in a biblical way in this Christian journey, in our Christian lives, we can easily forget what the mission is all about. See, believer, if you remember, okay, even though we are not, uh, uh, I am not the Joshua calling you to, to ready yourself for battle because we are on a conquest to get back a land. That's not today. But I am a Joshua who is going to challenge you as your pastor to say, are you staying focused are you, and are you staying on mission in the course of your own Christian journey? Are you finding that you're more devoted today than you were a week ago? Are you finding you're thinking more biblical thoughts today than you did a week ago, a month ago, six months ago, a year ago? Often we get so caught up in the immediate, in the present, in the necessity that's going on in this moment of our lives taking place right now, this week. Some of you are thinking, you're, you're hearing me talk, thinking about your to-do list for this coming week. Because we're so focused on all the things that we have to do that sometimes we don't take time to be still and know that he is God. Meditation helps us stop for a moment and say, what does God say about it? What does God think about it? What does God love about it? And what should I do about it? Biblical meditation really helps us as believers stay on mission. Now let's at least grapple with this before we get into the three points that I've given you this morning because there's, I think, all kinds of confusion and synchronization of various ways that people think about the idea of meditation. If you watch any cartoon or any kind of 
a perspective where someone was meditating. You have a picture in your mind right now, probably of some person sitting in a yoga position with their hands outstretched. Some Eastern mystic reality that somehow we do whatever we can to empty ourselves. See, this is one of the things that biblical meditation is not. Biblical meditation is not an emptying of the mind. Oh, that would be dangerous. But I've even heard, uh, you know, at different times, uh, my, my children would come home and say, hey, in the Fayed today, we did meditation. Like, they told us to think good thoughts about ourselves. <laughs> my, my children said, there's a lot of bad things about me. I'm a sinner. <laughs> well, they're, they're not emptying themselves. They're thinking about a biblical reality. It's not an emptying of your mind, and it's not a concentration on some self-effort that you just have what's in you, and it's, it's all inside of you. You just got to bring the goodness out. And the longer you sit there, it might just ooze out. I've just never experienced that. <laughs> What I have found is if I empty my mind from things of the truth and I begin to focus on myself, there's really bad things that come out. Really bad things. So meditation can't be that. Meditation is this, however. Meditation is a cognitive action of the mind. It's something that every believer chooses or doesn't choose to do. Notice these particular texts of Scripture, Psalm 63 being one. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask how many of you were up half the night last night because you couldn't sleep. Because I'll find out here in about 20 minutes because you'll be sleeping. But we know this, right? You wake up in the middle of the night and what better? You could, now here's what some people do. I've watched people who struggle with severe levels of depression, discouragement, and anxiety, and panic, and fear. They lay in their bed at night, preceding going to sleep, trying to fall asleep, thinking about all the things that they shouldn't be thinking about at that particular moment. And, and, and yet, in the distant, uh, one ear or another, depending on which side of the bed you sleep on, you're hearing the other person, like, just having a fantastic night of sleep. Don't you just think to yourself, like, shame on you. You're like, I ought to just wake you up. But what do you do with those moments? Do you think and meditate and reflect on the things that you shouldn't? I'll tell you what will happen when you go there. If you start saying to yourself, I'm not this, and, and, so, and, and all of a sudden you start thinking all kinds of destructive thoughts, I'll never be this way. Why did God make me this way? I don't think I'll ever be successful. I don't know if I even have any gifts to offer. I don't have any friends. I don't know if I'll ever get married. Do you know the longer you think about that, the less sleep you're going to get? I have not known one person who's like, I just want sleep. Like some of you are thinking that right now. Like, don't go long, Pastor, today. But what do you do when you wake up in the middle of the night? Well, this is what the psalmist did. Meditated in the watches of the night. 
is why biblical truths become so important. When you are sitting there and you're thinking, I can't go to sleep, what am I thinking? I remember at different times when I'm laying awake at night trying to run through the alphabet and figuring out an attribute of God for every single letter of the alphabet. And pretty soon when I got about a quarter of the way through, I was already asleep. But in the process, I was thinking, this is good. This is helpful. This is my God. This is my God who is allowing me to rest while he watches over all of my life. Where I am taking a hiatus from my my earthly world and rejuvenating my body, he doesn't sleep or slumber, but watches over every moment of my life so that I can rest in him. What about this one? It's not just a focus on God. It's a focus on his work. Look at Psalm 77, 12. I will ponder all your works, and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. You know, you can sit in your bed at night or otherwise, perhaps at family worship time, and just simply ask the question, what are the good things that God is doing in your life? You can go around the room in the family. What are you happy that God is doing? You begin to meditate on his works. It's not just just osmosis. I hope I'd rest my Bible that slaps me in the face as I fall asleep and hope it sinks in. It is a pondering of the very works and nature of God. It's even more than that. It's a focus on his word according to Psalm chapter 1 verse 2. But his Delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It is this cognitive action of the mind. It is not an emptying or self-perspective that you just have to see that there's something good so that you can end up being able to say what Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. See, as a believer, as a Christian, it is our duty, it is our responsibility to meditate, to reflect, to think deep thoughts that God wants us to think. Thoughts that are focused on who he is. Thoughts that are focused on what he does and his power, his his ability, his providence and his sovereignty his eternality, that we have a God that we serve that has never not existed. We have Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh as part of the Godhead who in John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and he was God, expressing the eternality of the Son. Oh, there are so many good thoughts that the Bible wants us to think and yet so many destructive thoughts I have seen run through people's minds. And let me just challenge you that a right perspective of biblical meditation intersects with the New Testament principle of taking your thoughts captive and laying them bare before the eyes of God, before his truth, and saying, is that a true thought? Oh, this could be no more important. This is good, could be shown of a great importance when it comes to somebody who struggles with anxiety and panic. Because what do you do? You think about what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, and you begin to wonder. I don't know if God can do anything about that. 
this is big. You know why it's so big? It's because the only thing, the bigness of what you're focusing on is the bigness of your problem. Not the bigness of your God who can handle the smallness of your problem. See, there's a very different perspective, whether it's fear or discouragement, anxiety, and depression. We are called to meditate, to take the thoughts captive, so that when we lay these thoughts before the Lord, and by the way, we will stand accountable for every thought, deed, and action. Which means how we meditate and upon what we meditate on really makes that big, is that big of a deal. What's at stake is our life when we stand before Jesus Christ one day and he lays open our book and he says, let's take a look at your life. What are the thoughts that you were thinking at these particular points in time? You know, all of us could go back and if we wanted to, in some sense, go, man, there were certain portions and pockets of my life that I was not thinking the way God would want me to think. And when I didn't think that way, it got me in a lot of trouble. And I began to love a lot of things that God told me not to do, not to love, and not to think. Every one of us could be are, are there. There's not a person in this room who has lived such a perfect and righteous life that they look back and say, well, just nothing comes to mind. I'm glad I'm among people who are like me. <laughs> because could you imagine... See, God is in the midst of redeeming people who were broken and making them new, which means that we actually ought to be able to measure moments of our life and even look back and say, I am so glad that I am not thinking the way I used to think. And you know what usually follows that? Is I'm not experiencing all of the negative effects and all the sinful distancing of relationship with God and other people because I thought that way. You can and I can change. But that change will come at a choice of how you live the life of the mind as a believer. It is not some Eastern mystic component to empty yourself of things. It's to add truth to your mind. Each and every day. And I want to challenge you. If the only diet of the truth that you get is when you come here and listen to a sermon that I'm preaching, it is not enough for you. It is not enough. You've got, to, you've got to dig deep during the week into the well of the truth and you will pull up the living water that can change your life. And you begin to examine the thoughts that you think because it's so critical, those thoughts, that you will stand accountable before God how you live, why you live, for what purpose you live. Don't, you know, young person, you're thinking to yourself right now, you're in high school, you're, you're a young junior higher, and you're thinking, I got the, my whole life ahead of me. You're going to come to a point in your, time, in your life where you look back, if you're not careful, and you're going to say to yourself, I did a whole lot of stupid things that meant nothing for the Lord. I knew all kinds of truth, and I didn't do any of it. I, I, I fooled everybody in the church. I came, I smiled, and yet 
I didn't do what God wanted me to do. If you're not careful, young person, you can get to an older portion of your life, and I've watched it with people on their deathbed who will say to me, Pastor, there are so many things I wish I could go back and do or do over again, but I can't. I hurt this person, and I thought this way, and it led me down this path, and I went there for years, and I marinated in that, and I thought about it, and I practiced it, and you know what? My kids saw it, and they go on and on. They, they even come to the end of their days. Don't let that be you, Christian. Oh, fight for the, the vibrancy and vitality of your Christian life through biblical meditation. We want to talk about three facets of a, of a good perspective of biblical meditation this morning. Feature number one is the right foundation. Notice this particular passage in, in verse number eight starts out with this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Okay? Notice this. It's this book. It's not a different book. What book he's very much specifying is to say the book of the law. Now, if, if you perhaps maybe got, you're, you're, you're newly saved and you're thinking to yourself, well, what's that? Is that the Exodus 10 Commandments? If I just follow the 10 Commandments, no, it's much more than that. In fact, this book of the law that Moses was challenged to read or to write and have people read was the first five books of the Bible, what is often called uh, by people the Pentateuch. The first five encompassed what all the law would require. And so when he says, Joshua, this book is supposed to be different and prized among any other book that you could imagine. You know what? Moses finished up writing this book before his death, and that book got placed near the Ark of the Covenant. It was supposed to be actively understood. It was supposed to be actively read. It was supposed to be actively rehearsed. You know what? Jesus says this very same thing in Matthew chapter 7. Notice this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat all that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like this wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now when we think about these particular perspectives, it is so important. Notice how in these particular verses, and everyone who hear these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Believer, if you don't allow your mind to meditate on the things of the truth, the, the story of your life is Matthew 7, 24 through 27. That the fall of it will be great. See, the truth matters because there's something about a biblical foundation. If, of course, we're not emptying, but we're putting in, then what we're putting in makes all the difference in the world. 
You notice how this, over, over the years and centuries, that the, the word of God has come to play and intersect with people's life. There has always been a challenge to the authority and inspiration and sufficiency of the word of God. From Genesis 3, when the snake in the garden said, did God really say, all the way to all the, the, the challenges in church history about inspiration and authority. Christianity Today in 2004, when writing an article on an individual by the name of Rob Bell, who since then has written a book uh, describing that hell doesn't exist, quoted this, they quoted uh, he and his wife in the article. And here's what, here's what they said. They said, life in the church had become so small, Christian says. It had worked for me for a long time, and then it stopped working. The Bells started questioning their assumption about the, Bible's, the Bible itself. Discovering the Bible as a human product, as Rob puts it, rather than the product of divine fiat. The Bible is still, he says, in the center for us, but it's a different kind of center. We want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, Kristen says, that we knew what it means. She says, but now I have no idea what most of it means, and yet I feel like life is big again. Like life used to be black and white, and now it's in color. See, the danger of all of a sudden abandoning propositional truth to the emptying of some mindset where you basically can think whatever thoughts you want to think and call them whatever you want to call them. That is the postmodern perspective that often we live in today. Everyone's truth is as good as another. It is embedded in all kinds of perspective, in all kinds of different uh, educational systems. I can remember sitting around as a youth pastor with a whole bunch of group of kids from, from uh, a, a wide variety of backgrounds and different uh, uh, religious persuasions, and we were talking about truth. And one of them said, well, we just kind of all have our own, right? I remember we're sitting in some big circle in a thing, and I slid my Bible out to the, the, to the middle of it. And I said, unless we all come to the understanding that this propositional truth is different than anything else. It, it's so different that it demands that it is absolute authority. And I remember even just watching the youth grapple with well, wait a minute, that's not what they told me. They told me I could believe whatever I wanted to believe. And we're challenging them. I was challenging them to think, you know what? How you think and how you measure those thoughts become critical. Because how do you know a good thought from a bad thought? A moral thing from an immoral thing? Well, you only know it because the truth tells you what is right from what is wrong. So when we use the idea of morality, we're just simply expressing the idea that there is a measuring stick of something that is true than something that is false. And there is a book who demands such authority that it tells you what's actually right and wrong. See, the moment we stop meditating on those things and we, don't, and we stop immersing our minds into the Bible, we lose an ability to think the thoughts God wants us to think. Which means, Christian, can I just challenge you? I've met 
plenty of Christians who have lived a long period of their Christian walk, and they very, they very infrequently read the Bible. Now, don't, don't think to yourself, <gasps> it happens. It happens at times in your life as things get complicated. It happens for a person as they go through various components of suffering, and they'll say to me, it's so hard to read the Bible right now all I can think of is my pain. And it's those moments that you have, to, you have to draw strength from the Lord and say, okay, then maybe I can't read as long as I'm used to reading, but I can read something. There's a truth that I can dwell on, an attribute, a, a perspective of God that I can get my mind to focus on. But it is all about the right foundation. See, because if you start, and you start going to the wrong foundation, and all of a sudden you're building your house on the sand, it will crumble, Christian. It will crumble. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that you live, that living in a culture like ours and filled with growing perspectives of non-religious people, regardless of the religious background and persuasion, that they have no idea how to handle suffering because they've been told all their life that they're supposed to get good things and life is supposed to be about them. And the moment that suffering comes, it does the exact opposite. You can't do anything about it. You're not in control. And why is this happening? And who's out to get me? And know who often they point fingers at? There. I've watched Christians grapple with these truths and say to themselves, I can't believe that I'm even saying this to myself, that I'm even tempted to think that God would be out to get me. But I'm tempted to think that. Well, where do you think those thoughts come from? They come from a heart that can be darkened by our own fleshly nature. And if we're not careful, we, in going to the right source, we won't have something to combat those thoughts. I mean, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped unto all good works. I mean, so opposite this is than people who are writing in this perspective. One particular individual who wrote a book recently on inspiration and authority wrote this in his, in, in, in his book uh, in, entire, entitled uh, Chapter on Biblical Inspiration and the Authority of Scripture. He says this, I propose that believers are the ones who vest the Bible with authority. And not only that, filled with the Spirit, we are the ones who actually inspire it. Years ago, as I was in seminary, reading various components of individuals who would have a popular perspective, even amongst the challenging evangelical thought of the day. A man who had written an entire book called Inspira Inspiration and Incarnation would write a book that re has people rethink about the authority and the way we think about inspiration in the Old Testament. To be able to say that God is more about using the ancient Near Eastern myth structure than he is about saying that whether this was a true story about Adam and Eve and the tree and the garden. That's really irrelevant, he would say. Because it's more about the myth and what it was trying to represent about a people who would turn themselves away from God. 
And the same individual as they got to Romans chapter 5 and, said, and, and had to grapple with the text, so as by one man sin entered into the world, and so death passed upon all men because all had sinned. He makes the comment, so Paul was wrong. He was just an early, an early man, and he wouldn't have understood what we now understand today. See, what, what is at stake is our view of inspiration when we go by another book. Now, for the Old Testament individual at this particular time, Revelation consisted of those five books of the Bible. But you get to the end of the book of Joshua, and you see in Joshua 24, if you were to read that chapter, that Joshua adds and writes various things, and he validates the authority of the Pentateuch. That can tell you something about canonization in the early Old Testament perspective. Immediately when Moses wrote it, all the children of Israel confirmed, this is God's word. It became their canon. And it was added to over time by different prophets, by different individuals that God so choose to use to write the Bible. They weren't just authors uh, in a sense that just decided one day they woke up and like, I think I'm going to write the Bible today. If you have that thought, you're not writing the Bible. You're just writing your thoughts. Revelation is now fixed. That's why we have a wonderful Bible from Genesis to Revelation that you don't have to wonder, is he not giving me something here? Is he not telling me something? Authority and sufficiency is so important. The foundation leads us to a reality that when we reason and take thoughts captive in the mind and we choose to think the thoughts we should think, that we actually have objective truth. Oh, there's so much going on in a postmodern culture that, that gets us to grapple with objectivity and subjectivity. This idea that somehow truth is whatever I want it to mean, which is subjectivity, and objectivity, which is God said it, so I have, to, I have to embrace it. Propositional truth is objective. This is why people hate it. When God says in, in the world that we live in, thou shalt not murder, we don't subjectivize it and say, well, abortion is not murder because it's a fetus. See, we have to look at objective propositional truth and say it matters because that's, that's the revelation that we get from God, not just, hey, I want to think whatever I want. An absolute truth from revelation gives us the ability to judge and weigh those thoughts. But don't just think true thoughts, Christian. Love them. Love true things. See, Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, talks about the blessed man. He doesn't sit in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners, but did you notice this? His delight is in the law of the Lord. If I put it another way, his delight is in the Lord who gave the law. But when you don't delight in the Lord who gives the law, you begin to dismantle it and do what our culture is doing. And many people in the Christian evangelical world have embraced some kind of deconstruction of their faith and are picking it apart and saying, you know what? I'm experiencing all these things because I was taught this and it's wrong and this and it's wrong and this and it's wrong. And they're deconstructing their whole 
faith-based system based upon desires to live in the world and do the things of the world. Well, the Christian, we have to love the truth. Well, how do you know if you do that? How do you know if you're doing it? Well, you're spending time there. Watch where you're spending your time, Christian. Can you, can you stop watching one thing for a brief period of time? Can you stop doing some hobby, some other thing that you would like to do to make room for more things that you can put in your mind to meditate on? I don't know a single person living on the face of this planet or Christian that probably couldn't do with pulling back a little from a component of social media and entertainment to enter into their mind things that are of greater, eternal, more heavenly value. We're all in it together. But the moment we all of a sudden think, no, that's not me. No, I hope it's not you. But if it is you, what are you going to do about it? Because that will be the proof in of whether you love the things of the truth, not just know the things of the truth. That's a big difference. Let me read this verse. I want you to listen to it because, because it's so critical when we think about a foundation. Second Timothy, if you want to turn there, you can, but write down this reference, perhaps go back to it later. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Notice what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. Now here it is. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for, as for you, Paul says, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. We live in a world that even truth itself is trying to be re-explained into some mythical perspective. When there was a real Adam, a real Eve, and a real tree with real sin that created a real problem. And that real problem solution was a real savior who came, entered into our world to take our sin on our behalf so that we could be saved. If we repent and we turn to him, we'll find salvation. That was what was at stake for Joshua. Is that they would experience the conquest with God's presence or without it. And I would say to you, you can experience the life of a Christian, in a sense, with greater presence of God or less. Because you're not impacting your own mind and not dwelling on the truths of the scripture that he calls. This was critical for leaders if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're a leader and a, and a teacher, if you've been called to any of those capacities, no matter who it is you're teaching, no matter what age you're teaching, this is critically important for your life. Because you cannot give to people something you don't have. You cannot guide them to a place that you have not gone. <laughs> That's the whole idea of discipleship, that Jesus could say, follow me, because he knew what he was going through, and we're calling people, follow us as we follow Christ. The right foundation is critical, but it doesn't just stop there. 
we have to have the right frequency of meditation. And you notice this in this passage, and we won't linger here long because it's not very complex. In verse number 8, he says, This law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Okay, now what is the whole point? Is it mean, if a very literal perspective is this, you better not spend one millisecond not thinking about the things of the law. And if you do, and if you, if you stop, you better repent immediately. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. What I think he's doing here is saying he's encompassing the life of the person and he's saying something like, these biblical, truth-filled thoughts that you are thinking need to be regular. So regular, by the way, that it can encompass both your morning all the way to your evening, and if you happen to wake up at night, then you're going to meditate on them then too. Let it permeate and saturate your life. That's the point he's trying to make. Have so much intake of the word that all of a sudden... That even as your mind struggles and suffering occurs, that what comes out has been so much of what has been put in there. Isn't that the importance of Proverbs 4? Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. It needs to be regular, thoughtful. It needs to have a soul that's saturated. And I want to challenge you. You Listen to sermons, listen to spiritual podcasts, listen to various things, read the word, memorize the word, do all kinds of things. I mean, if you're in a car and you're driving somewhere because your vehicle, your, your job occupation keeps you on the road, get something that you can get the word of God and listening to it. The idea of meditation on the level of frequency, this is why, by the way, for the Old Testament Jew, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, is because they would often recite it. And for a, for a, for a Jewish boy in the old, with an Old Testament bar mitzvah, he had learned and memorized significant portions of the Hebrew text. You know, we are so geared on this only up, I think, until right around sixth grade when Awana ended. And then somehow, as adults, we help them, but don't model it for them. Can I just challenge you? It doesn't matter. You, know, you need the word. We need to teach our children the word. We need to get them saturated. It's not just about, it's not about, hey, can I get this? If I memorize this, it's not mechanical and it's not formulaic. Just by saying the things you should say or thinking the things that you should do does not alleviate any one of us, any one of us from saying, Will I do the things that I'm thinking? And will they be honoring to the Lord from my heart? So you can have all the right thoughts, but do very little about it. Biblical meditation challenges you. It's the work that the, it, the Spirit uses the Word to draw us to the truth, to convict our souls, so we can repent and we can be guided to a greater relationship with God. What is it that the Spirit is using in John 16? The truth. The lesser influence that you have in the truth in your life guess what will often happen? Lesser conviction. Because you've got nothing, the Spirit of God is, is you're not putting it uh, in your soul and in your heart. It needs to be so regular, Christian, that we ought not to be people that we say, oh, I, I haven't read through the Bible. Well, get on a plan, brother or sister, of something. 
Read through the Bible at least once in your lifetime. I mean, I, I remember just reading through it with our, with our kids at our family worship time and hearing them say, I cannot believe that that's in the Bible. I'm like, I know. I couldn't believe it either when I first read it. But there it is in propositional form, which means you actually have to say, do you believe it? Is it the truth? Do you accept it? And will you live by it? Which is why so much of our family worship time ends with application even. What are we going to do about the things that we know? If we skip that part, moms and dads, we are failing to help them see why it matters. Do that. It'll help them. You're teaching them how to meditate through your family worship. Do it regularly. Okay? I'm not going to get so strict as to say you miss, if you don't hit seven out of seven, days during the week. Oh, you're messing it up and you're messing your kids up. Could, you, could your kids look back at their lives and say, it was pretty regular. It was pretty regular. It might not have been every night, but it was regular enough that I got a lot of truth. And I got it on a frequent basis and they challenged me how I was going to think. So not only the right foundation, not only the right frequency, which is a regularity and a thoughtfulness, but also feature number three, the right focus. Now notice this in this last part and then we'll, we'll go through this quickly and we'll, and we'll close. He says, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. He uses this word and anchors it to this idea, be very courageous because he wants us to prosper. Here's one of the things I want you to get a hold of. God wants you to prosper in your spiritual walk with him. That's not have faith and you'll get all the health and wealth and all the kind of good things that you want. That's not that. He wants you to live a very successful Christian life. One that you look back and say, that was worth living. He's given you the whole Bible to make sure that you could say, Here's the instruction manual. Here's the roadmap for how to, to, to be prosperous. And that's what he gave to Joshua and reminded him as a leader. Joshua, follow the book. Like, follow the book. Like, I am reminded of that each and every week in my study, week after week after week. Like, what is my task? Follow the book. Don't deviate from it to the right or to the left. Don't be hesitant to say the things that need to be said because it, somebody might get offended if you say it. Be a person of the book. The Bible's offensive enough. So speak the truth in love. We don't need you to be offensive or me to be offensive. The, the truth is offensive. We can take the things that God gave to us and bring it in truth and love. The right focus is he wants us. And you notice most often that when this word is used in the Old Testament, that is coupled this idea of prosperity and success came from or as a result of the gracious hand of God. Think about Abraham's servant when he went looking for a wife for his son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 24, the servant goes by the well and out comes Rebekah and he, and he says something like this, my master made me, me swear saying, you shall not take a wife from my son for the, from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And I said to, to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he, said to him, but he said to me, 
The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. See, every time, a good majority of the time that this word is used, it is coupled with the prosperity that one experiences at the result of the hands of a gracious God. You could go back to Abraham and his servant. You could go back to Joseph and how he became a successful man in Potiphar's house and all of a sudden he prospered. Was it because Joseph was an incredible guy? Well, he certainly was, but his God was more incredible. You could go back to the Messiah in Isaiah 53 and you hear this in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, talking about the messianic coming Messiah. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Even of the messianic figure, it uses the word prosperous coupled with this reality that prosperity will only come by the hand of a gracious God so that the one who has been given a great gift will recognize from whom it came and be thankful. From Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Nehemiah to kings of the Old Testament to Joshua in our present text, over and over and over again it can be said that the right focus is prosperity means spirituality. It's not mechanics, it's not a formula, you have to believe it in your heart, otherwise it doesn't make, it doesn't mean anything. I will have countless Christians come to me over and over again and say, and, and are suffering through various components and they're wrestling with it and they'll be able to recite truth to me and I'll ask them the question, yes, I'm so glad that you know that, but are you believing that? And they'll say no. Because in the midst of our pain and our suffering, the difficulty is not often what we know, it's what we're willing to, to actually embrace and believe and work hard at. That's why he says, be very strong and courageous. To what? To follow the truth. Because it's gonna be a hard in a day and age like ours where people are abandoning the truth left and right. And what will that bring? It will bring a life of prosperity in your spiritual walk before God. It says something to us as leaders. It says something to us as disciplers. Take every thought captive, would you? Challenge your mind. Meditate on the truth. Have it be a thoughtful disposition. If you're a leader, this ought to model, be modeled in your life. As you're discipling other people, read the truth together. If you're a husband and wife, read the truth. Meditate on the truth. Listen to various messages together. If you're a parent, what are you doing in, in family worship? Do everything you can to move yourself and your family along to a greater spiritual strength through biblical meditation so that you don't waver from staying focused and staying on mission this side of heaven. Because the moment we stop, we will succumb to the pressures often of the world and, we, and, and Satan will tempt us and derail us so that he can defame God and pull all the glory, he wants to pull all the glory away so what do we do? We do what the Bible says. We do what uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 says. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God. He is the faithful God. He's the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It challenges us to teach our kids as, we, as they rise up, as they walk by the way, as they lie down at night. 
that these truths matter. It's the Deuteronomy 10. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and, so, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today. Notice this. For your good, Christian. It's for our good. Good fathers say no when it's necessary. And the truth helps us determine what we should say no to and what we should say yes to. We should do Psalm 119.11, I have stored up the word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You're reflecting on these thoughts day in and day out, and I would challenge you, when you think about meditation, read, reflect, recite, respond. Read it, reflect on it. Why does it matter? Recite it, recite it out loud. I found that there's times where I'm pacing around, memorizing a truth, <laughs> saying it out loud to myself. I'm reading it, reflecting it, reciting it, and then I'm asking myself this final question. Josh, what are you going to do about that? How will you respond? And where, should you need, where does this need to be applied to? Read it, reflect on it, recite it, and respond. If you're doing that with the right source, on a right frequency, with the right focus, you can live a life that, that finds much more joy and you will be the Psalm 1 blessed person. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartache and challenges, you'll be like a tree that's planted by streams of living water who in every season will grow in its fruit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your truth. As Joshua was entering with the people, preparing them, you challenged him to say this book of the law, these particular truths, to not let it depart from out of his mouth, but to meditate on it day and night, that he would have a, a thoughtful, cognitive way of taking thoughts captive to guide the people as a leader to the truth of your word and to the vibrancy of their spiritual walk so that every time they would win a battle, they wouldn't look and say, look at how great we are. But they would say, look how great our God is. That's how we want to live our lives. Meditating on your truth, saying the goodness of God matters and help us to be able to demonstrate that as we make disciples in the time that you've called us to live. In your name we pray, amen.